Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. In the last year, as the government and all of us dealt with the ongoing outbreak of COVID-19, so much of the work of fighting back against the virus and also just governing us on day-to-day life became so often a debate about expertise, the role of expertise in government, the role of expertise outside of government. Of course, those are recurring themes throughout all of administrative law. And so to focus more squarely on the subject of expertise, the Grace Center hosted a research roundtable last fall where we workshopped four papers looking at different aspects of expertise in administration. We titled the roundtable Facts, Science, and Expertise in the Administrative State, and all four papers are available online on our website now in our working paper series. One of the papers was titled The Role of Judgment and Deliberation in Science-Based Policy. That was by Tony Mills. Another was titled The Case Against Chevron Deference in Immigration Education by Shoba Wadia and Chris Walker. I'm here today with the authors of the two other papers, both focused on judicial deference, two fascinating papers that I'm so glad we're getting to discuss. The first paper we'll discuss by Jonathan Adler of Case Western is titled Super Deference and Heightened Scrutiny, or When Super Deference is Not So Super. Jonathan, welcome. Good to be here. And the other paper we'll get to in just a little bit is by Don Elliott of Yale and the Antonin Scalia Law School. His paper is titled Retiring No-Look Judicial Review in Agency Cases Involving Science. Don, welcome. Thank you. Now, both these papers center around the Baltimore gas case, the sort of less famous uh, sister case to the much more famous State Farm case. But we have both, in both these papers, we see discussion of the case, discussion of how the case has been applied over years and calls for reform. Jonathan, starting with you, why don't you tell us about this concept of super deference? Uh, what is it and, and why do we have it? Sure. So um, what has been colloquially referred to as super deference is the degree of deference that courts are, were told to take in, in Baltimore gas and lower courts have taken to agency scientific judgments or assessments of scientific material, uh, particularly where there is scientific uncertainty or in the court's phrase, uh, questions that are on the frontiers of science. And the idea is that uh, Congress creates regulatory agencies or administrative agencies uh, with specialized jurisdictions, uh, specialized expertise to deal with given subject matter or given sorts of questions, and that it is to be expected that those agencies have a degree of expertise about that that, uh, material, about that content that uh, courts do not have, and that in recognition of this, courts should be particularly differential uh, to agency scientific judgments. And the language of the Baltimore gas case, and certainly the way it has been understood in many lower court decisions, is that this is an even greater degree of deference than is perhaps shown to a regular uh, factual findings. Um, uh, that Whereas regular factual findings may be uh, only subject to a substantial evidence standard, uh, or where uh, in, in general rule, review of rulemakings, courts may be concerned about the extent to which an agency engaged in reasoned decision-making when finding facts, that where what is at issue is a scientific judgment or a judgment about what the science shows, that the courts should be particularly cognizant of the fact that they do not have the sort of expertise 
uh, that uh, uh, the agencies they are reviewing have. And as a consequence, that, that means that uh, if one's objection to what an agency is doing is fundamentally a disagreement with the agency's read on what the science shows or what the agency is willing to argue the science shows, uh, one has a particularly uh, a grueling task ahead of them in terms of convincing a court uh, to upset or overturn that judgment. Maybe we'll, we'll pause and just linger on the Baltimore gas case itself for a moment just to help set things up. And since it, it, it pertains both to your paper and also to Don's paper, I'll give Don a chance to jump in maybe a little early on this too. But Jonathan, uh, to put you on the spot, could you maybe just say a few words about what the Baltimore case itself was and and maybe how it relates to the much more famous State Farm case? Yeah, so it's the, it's the same year as the State Farm case, um, although in some respects, Baltimore Gas might be better understood as as a, re, a relative of Vermont Yankee because both arose out of litigation over nuclear power. And for the folks that are interested in, in legal history among our listeners, it, it's helpful to understand both cases as... Um, resulting from the Supreme Court's frustration with what at least some justices felt was overzealous policing of agencies by the D.C. Circuit. Uh, this was true more broadly in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, you know, arguably, the Chevron itself can be understood in part uh, as arising from this this context. But, but Baltimore Gas concerned uh, judicial review of judgments about uh, about relating to nuclear power and you know, there was a lot of uh, consternation about nuclear power at the time. There was a lot of concern about about the uncertainty with regard to what the worst case scenarios were about nuclear power. Um, some listeners may remember uh, movies like The China Syndrome or, or Silkwood and kind of the whole concern about, you know, nuclear power was one of those things that if it went wrong, could go really, really wrong. And... Um, the D.C. Circuit had been somewhat sympathetic to those sorts of concerns, uh, to what we might, today might refer to as precautionary principle sorts of arguments. And, you know, I think one of the best ways to understand uh, Baltimore gas was that the court was saying, look, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission knows more about this than we do. It is charged with evaluating these risks based on what scientific information we do or don't know. And um, before disturbing the reasonableness of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's judgment about these questions um, that are surrounded with uncertainty and in, in that infamous phrase that I know Don uh, really doesn't like that are at the frontiers of science, um, uh, that that the court should be particularly deferential in that sort of context. And um, the court held that that in evaluating these sorts of risks, and in particular whether or not uh, the disposal of nuclear wastes and their environmental consequences were something that should just would justify greater precautions. Uh, the court felt that, or held that, that making the 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 assumption related to what sorts of uh, containment uh, technologies would be available in, entailed a policy judgment within the bounds of reasoned decision making, and that in making that policy judgment about uh, how we would be able to or not be able to deal with nuclear waste that the court had to be particularly deferential to the quote-unquote special expertise of the agency uh, at the frontiers of science, and that, uh, and the court explained that, that, that the sort of scientific determinations necessary should be entitled to greater deference than what the court 
characterized as simple findings of fact. And from that case, um, uh, the, 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 what lower courts took from that is where State Farm, is, which is the, the source of our general standard of, of arbitrary and capricious review, or, or what we like to call hard look review, uh, the idea that the, that the agency has to have looked at all of the relevant aspects of a, of a decision to satisfy the requirements of reasoned decision making, um, that in these sorts of contexts where what's really at the heart of the issue is the scientific question, there needed to be a little extra deference uh, to the agency um, beyond what would would apply in a normal arbitrary and capricious review context. Now, Don, in a little bit we'll, we'll discuss your, your criticism of the, of, of the, the Baltimore gas doctrine, the, the, as you call it, the no-look doctrine. Um, but just, would you like to, in the meantime, would you like to add anything to, to Jonathan's description, just teeing up what Baltimore gas is in the first place? Um. No, I, I think Jonathan has described it fairly. I uh, First of all, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me to participate. Um, it's always a pleasure, and I'm uh, a, a little bit reluctant to be disagreeing with uh, my, my friend, uh, Jonathan Adler. Um, I think there are very few, if any, people in his generation whose work I respect as much as, uh, as, as Jonathan's. Um, I, I think the disagreement between us is relatively narrow and, and somewhat technical. Um, I, I don't really disagree with the way that uh, Jonathan uh, described uh, the notion that, that courts should defer to uh, agencies on scientific issues. I just see that as ordinary deference. And I, I think that this concept of super deference, which Jonathan refers to that there's somehow a different kind of deference in a uh, in a case involving science. Um, I just think that's a myth. This term super deference was used in a law review article. It's it's never been used by a uh, by a court, and I actually think it doesn't exist as a as a separate kind of, of deference. I think that everything that uh, uh, Jonathan uh, says about courts deferring to the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, because of its expertise. I I think that's ordinary administrative law deference, and I don't think we need a special or different uh, doctrine to to get to those uh, results. And in fact, I don't think the court was actually uh, trying to create a, a different kind of deference. I think it was really an offhanded remark that was probably directed at uh, Chief Judge David Bazelon, who had uh, emphasized the, the need for uh, courts not to second-guess uh, agencies on questions of science, and yet he had joined the lower court opinion. So I think it was really just an offhanded comment by the, by the court trying to rem- remind one of the judges of his own, uh, of his own uh, notion uh, that uh, courts were not in a very good position to second-guess uh, agencies on, on questions of uh, science or anything else within their area of expertise. Um, in fact, and we'll, we'll talk about this maybe later, I won't go on too long now, but um, it, 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 at, the, at the time, there were a couple of different law review articles, and, and one of them coined this term super deference. An, another uh, at the time by a, a very wise uh, writer named Don Stever, who was who was both in practice and an academic, predicted that as a practical matter, 
the the doctrine would become uh, an excuse for courts not to look at agency conclusions at all. And I'll I'll argue later in the in the podcast that that's exactly what has happened. That courts have not in fact applied the doctrine in the reasonable way that. Uh, uh, Jonathan suggests to not second guess agencies on issues of science. I think you get to that result with uh, ordinary deference. So I want to deny that there is a different kind of deference, uh, in, in, in ages, in, uh, questions of science. And that's enough for now. And I'll, I'll expand on this a little bit later. Well, thanks, Tom. We will we'll return to that in just a bit. I'll, I'll just point out for the sake of our listeners, um, that not only were Baltimore Gas and the more famous State Farm case decided in the same term, and they were argued within weeks of each other, I believe. I think they were decided within just a couple of weeks each other, of each other, both at the end of the uh, 1982 to 1983 Supreme Court term. About five years ago, as, um, uh, as Jonathan notes in the footnote uh, in, in his paper, uh, about five years ago, Jacob Gerson and Adrian Vermeule wrote a paper arguing that actually Baltimore Gas, the Baltimore Gas approach is much more representative of how lower courts have applied arbitrary and capricious review than State Farm. Um, but I'm, let me just put the, all that out there and get back on track with Jonathan and his paper. So Jonathan, well, well just oh, before you do that, if I could make a sure. comment on what you just said, sure. I think another re, another way to read the Vermeule paper and actually how I read it is that they are saying that what some people describe as the Baltimore gas and electric isn't a separate kind of deference. It's simply the ordinary deference the courts are supposed to give to expert agencies on on all of these issues. So, you know, I, I think in a certain way, their argument, um, you know, really supports my position that this isn't a separate kind of reference. Well, that's, that's a fair point. Fair point. Uh, Jonathan, your paper, well, it tees up the issue of super deference. The, the thrust of your paper is to is to look at super deference in reference to maybe the much more familiar um, concept throughout American constitutional law of heightened scrutiny of certain government action. So having already sort of laid the groundwork with super deference, why don't you explain maybe for the administrative law people listening to this podcast who don't dabble in other constitutional areas, what's heightened scrutiny? Sure. So heightened scrutiny is, is the umbrella term we use for a, a, a variety of constitutional doctrines that apply a greater degree of judicial scrutiny to certain types of uh, uh, policy judgments um, by other governmental actors. And uh, it has its roots, or its, its roots are generally uh, uh, t- uh, attributed to uh, the infamous footnote four in a case called Caroline Products, where the Supreme Court, in upholding um, uh, a government regulation um, on rational basis review, kind of the basic review of, of governmental action, uh, in this footnote, the court said that there are certain sorts of contexts in which uh, courts should not presume that what the political branches have done is regular and ordinary and and legitimate, but shouldn't in fact inquire more deeply into uh, either the rationale for what the government is doing uh, or the the consequences of what the government is doing. And and that footnote identified some categories of 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 types of actions that would. Uh, trigger greater scrutiny. Uh, one were sorts of actions that that affect the democratic process. This was the inspiration for a famous book by John Hart Ely, Democracy and Distrust, that talks about the role of judicial review and kind of making sure the democratic process works as it should. Uh, the perhaps more famous parts of, of footnote four talk about where the government is uh, taking actions that 
uh, infringe upon constitutionally protected liberties. We might think of as things that are protected by the Bill of Rights or the 14th Amendment, uh, or uh, governmental actions that um, uh, discriminate on the basis of suspect classifications, uh, racial classifications, sex-based classifications, and the like. And so out of this footnote grew a set of doctrines in, in the due process area, in the equal protection area, that have said that certain sorts of governmental decisions um, need to be subject to a greater degree of scrutiny. And we, so we, we talk about strict scrutiny. We talk about intermediate scrutiny. Uh, diff, um, these different variants of heightened scrutiny all involve requiring government to show uh, something more than a mere rational basis, both in terms of the ends being pursued and the means that are being used to achieve that ends. So whereas rational basis typically only requires that the government show that it is pursuing a legitimate state interest and, and that there being some reasonable relationship between what the government is doing and that goal. Um, heightened scrutiny tends to require a greater interest. So intermediate scrutiny would require an important governmental interest. Strict scrutiny would, would require a compelling governmental interest. Uh, tons of ink has been spilled on the extent to which uh, some interests are compelling but not, uh, and important and some are, are just important. And then on the means um, – uh, side of things, heightened scrutiny requires a greater degree of fit, uh, less over-inclusiveness or under-inclusiveness, um, but a greater degree of fit between the end being pursued and the means uh, uh, that is being used. And again, depending on the level of heightened scrutiny, there is some modulation of how close that fit must be. And again, there is a whole robust academic literature um, uh, exploring that. The point of, of my paper is really just to identify, I guess, what you might think of as this on-off switch between kind of ordinary rational basis constitutional review of governmental action under which we presume uh, that governmental action is legitimate, that we presume that the legislature has acted uh, responsibly, we presume that the executive branch has acted responsibly, there is a, a presumption of regularity. And this switch that we flip in constitutional law, where we relax that assumption, where we we expect courts to uh, ask questions and look beyond behind the veil of what government says it's doing uh, because of these other constitutional values at stake. And and if I may, what I, what I, what I think is the next question is why are these two topics related? Um, my my intuition behind this paper is that given the growth of the administrative state, we increasingly see contexts in which governmental action, particularly taken by agencies, is driven by agency judgment about what science justifies or compels, and that the breadth of what the government is doing implicates things that we have determined are subject to heightened scrutiny. And so this can mean um, regulation of speech. Um, uh, commercial speech doesn't get the same protection as a political speech, but it still is constitutionally protected. And we have laws that, that restrict what people can say or mandate what people can say often on scientific reasons. We see governmental classifications based on uh, race or ethnicity or based on sex, where the agencies claim there is a scientific justification for that. Um, and then, you know, somewhat coincidentally, this wasn't, I didn't necessarily anticipate this when, when I first conceived of the paper, but I think, I think COVID-19 has actually highlighted uh, the fact that we haven't thought through uh, what to do when on the one hand we have expert agencies claiming scientific expertise that that justify governmental actions we may not normally accept. But on the other hand, we have fundamental liberties, constitutionally protected liberties that uh, we have recognized as being 
uh, uh, subject to greater protection. And and so this, you know, the, the idea of the paper was to juxtapose these two and, and say, okay, what do we do when, on the one hand, we have a doctrine that suggests courts are supposed to be particularly deferential, but on the other hand, uh, a doctrine that says that courts are supposed to engage in extra scrutiny? And how do we think? How should we think through that co- that conflict? At least in the context of federal agencies, although I think there are some implications of the paper for that conflict more broadly, even though I focus on it in the context of of deference to federal agencies. In the in the year of COVID, especially in the Supreme Court, we saw a lot of collision between um, government action of the realm of science and health protection being sort of conflicting with uh, people's religious obligations or their desire to go to church and so on. But when you set about to write this paper, and again, you, your original draft we workshopped boy, last fall. I think it was October or November of last fall. Those cases really hadn't arisen yet. Could you maybe offer an example of the sort of conflict that you had in mind, maybe a case or, or just a, a government program where you see a, both the, the, the context that would normally give rise to so-called super deference and uh, the context where you have heightened judicial review? I think I saw Don raise his hand. I'll let Don jump in first while John, Jonathan's uh, thinking. Yeah, I think a really good one uh, is the uh, ongoing controversy about whether or not the uh, uh, the CDC uh, c- can uh, impose a nationwide ban on evictions because the CDC determines that uh, evictions uh, promote the uh, the spread of uh, of COVID nineteen. Uh, and so, you, you know, you have a conflict between the agency scientific judgment, uh, and the, what would otherwise be, be the, uh, rights. My, I, I don't disagree with, uh, uh, Jonathan at all that in such circumstances, the courts should, uh, strike a balance by making sure that there is a rational basis in the record for the agency's, uh, action. Uh, but also at the same time defer to, uh, defer to agency scientific judgments. One of the interesting anomalies is that, uh, under the, under the so-called Baltimore gas and electric test, um, one is supposed to look at the nature of the question, but not necessarily what went on inside the agency. So you have this really strange anomaly that courts are supposed to defer to agency scientific judgments, even if all the scientists within the agency came out the other way and the decision was made completely on a uh, on political grounds. And I think that's something I suggest in the paper that we should uh, we should get rid of, uh, and that perhaps the Supreme Court's decision in the recent uh, uh, customs case, in which they declared the agency's rationale to have been pretextual is the beginning of saying that, well, courts will go behind the stated rationale uh, to see whether or not that really the decision was made on a, on a scientific basis or on some other, some other basis. But I, I don't disagree with the main part of uh, Jonathan's paper that, that uh, courts should, uh, uh, should verify that there is a, a, a valid basis for, uh, or at least an arguable basis for governmental action uh, where we have this uh, heightened scrutiny. I just don't think you need the heightened scrutiny. I think the Administrative Procedure Act uh, is basically a uh, statutory mandate 
to courts to verify um, that there is at least a plausible basis in, in the record for the agency's judgment, but not to second guess the agency's uh, a judgment. I just don't think, uh, I just think that my, my friend Jonathan uh, concedes a little bit too easily that the, uh, that the, uh, the, 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 that there, number one, that there is this kind of heightened degree of scrutiny. I don't really know what that, that means. Maybe we could talk about that a little bit later. But, but number two, I think there's a, I think there's a fundamental separation of powers issues when, uh, when courts have been uh, told to do something by the legislature, uh, and then they, then they just basically say, well, I, I don't want to, uh, and, and excuse themselves from performing a, a function that, uh, is, is a pretty thin function in any event, as Bermule argues. I mean, in the normal administrative law under the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, all that a court is really needs to do is to see that there is a potentially plausible rationale there and that there is some degree of scientific information that uh, supports what the agency has done. And in, in ordinary judicial review under the Administrative Procedure Act does not authorize agencies to second guess um, uh, agencies on on areas within their uh, within their expertise. So, I really think this notion of super deference is is what's called in philosophy an empty concept. You can you can come up with something like you know phlogiston or unicorns that exists as a matter of language, but that doesn't mean that it really exists in the real world. And I have yet to see either a court or my friend Jonathan explain how super deference is really different uh, than the type of deference that the Administrative Procedure Act mandates any time an agency is making uh, uh, judgments within its particular area of expertise. I don't see why science is any different than, than say, uh, labor relations in terms of deferring to the agency's expertise. Well, let's let Jonathan jump back in on this. Um, Jonathan, Don did begin with a, an example of, of the CDC and the eviction moratorium. Um, is that a, a is that a good example of the particular kind of conflict that you're talking about in your paper? The, the conflict between areas of super deference and areas of heightened scrutiny, or is there another one that you think sort of puts the, the this conflict in, in more concrete terms? Sure. Well, I, I can give just a few quick examples. Um, sure. uh, I mean, you know, that, that, that one can, I think it depends. The question there is, is whether or not, uh, the, the, the court judgments are, are based on an assessment of the CDC's, uh, scientific claims or whether they're based on other things. So here in Ohio, at least the federal district court that, uh, r- ruled against the CDC did so fairly, purely on, on statutory interpretation grounds. But, um, so in two two examples that I had thought about before um, writing the paper or that were inspiration for the paper um, and and one that we might think of as having a conservative valence and another that we might think of having a liberal valence um, so one is relates to a mandatory labeling for cigarette packages and the d c circuit uh, heard a challenge to um, to uh, uh, an fDA requirement that uh, cigarette companies put uh, pictures on their packages that show the consequences of smoking. And it wasn't simply a written label, but these graphic warning labels. And one of the issues the court was asked 
to look at or one of the bases for challenging that was an argument uh, made by uh, tobacco companies that um, there was no scientific basis to believe that these gra- the graphic warning labels of the sort the FDA selected uh, actually did anything to achieve the purpose that the FDA was putting them on uh, or putting them on, on, on packages for. And um, in, in a controversial split decision that was later, uh, if I recall correctly, later vacated, um, uh, the court um, uh, rejected the FDA's judgment. But that really brought in relief this idea that, you know, do we just trust the fact that the FDA believes that these labels uh, will achieve their purpose uh, when there's not a lot of scientific research? Or is that something that we actually expect the agency to have to prove? Because what we were talking about there was not um, the disclosure of a uncontroversial scientific fact or an empirical fact. This was something far more uh, value-laden than, say, a a bare disclosure that cigarettes cause cancer or cigarettes cause heart disease, um, but rather something designed to appeal to emotion and to uh, have other sort of communicative content. Uh, So that, and there are lots of examples out of the speech context where um, uh, government agencies out of a desire for precaution or whatever else uh, seek to impose either disclosure requirements or seek to uh, prevent uh, manufacturers from saying certain things about products that um, on the basis of, 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 of scientific claims, but where those scientific claims are, are certainly questionable if we're going to unpack them, if we're, if we're going to not give them uh, some degree of super deference. The one that cuts the other way is, uh, and just sticking with the FDA, is the FDA has for a long time um, restricted uh, blood and sperm donation by uh, individuals who the FDA classifies as men having sex with men. So it's a, it's as, as defined by the FDA, it is a sex-based classification. It is, um, uh, not a pure behavior-based classification, nor is it a sexual orientation-based classification, but as defined by the FDA, it's a sex-based classification. And while that classification may have been justified as being, um, the best we could do in the 80s when it was first adopted due to concerns about HIV in particular, um, the scientific basis for that judgment has been uh, challenged over time. But but if we say that that the FDAs do the, the greatest degree of deference for the scientific judgment that this group of people pose a greater risk than others um, uh, when giving a blood or sperm donations, then that might be something that courts would have to defer to. One last example, which arises out of the COVID context that actually did reach the Supreme Court, again with the FDA, don't mean to beat up on the FDA, but I think it's useful just to think about how one agency uh, repeatedly can raise these sorts of concerns. Um, uh, There are some medications that the FDA um, requires uh, to be administered um, in, in person. Uh, in the doctor's office um, and not a medication that you take home. And the medical justification for that is is, is a judgment by the FDA that there may be complications. One of the drugs um, uh, that is subject to that sort of requirement is um, uh, is uh, a, a plan B contraception, depending on, 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 and there's obviously, some listeners may know there is a big uh, dispute over how we are supposed to characterize these sorts of drugs. Uh, for my purposes, I don't think it, it really matters. Um, during COVID, um, the FDA relaxed the in-person dispensing requirements for some medications and not for others. Uh, one that it did not relax the in-person dispensing requirement for is uh, mifepristone. Um, 
which may be prescribed in a combination with misoprostol to terminate an early stage pregnancy. And um, this was challenged as as uh, not merely on the scientific grounds, but as being an infringement upon um, the uh, constitutionally protected right to terminate a pregnancy as recognized in cases like Roe and Casey. And, you know, I should just note my paper generally, I take the constitutional law doctrine on all these areas, commercial speech, uh, reproductive rights, and so on, as it is. Um, uh, my argument is, is that if something is subject to this greater scrutiny, certain things follow. Um, I leave the question of whether or not we are protecting the right things or the wrong things. And again, some listeners may not like the protection of commercial speech. Some other listeners might not like the protection of reproductive rights. That's exogenous to my product, project. Um, but what was really interesting is that is that the court um, in this case, you know, said, hey, look, we're really deferential. Um, and doctrinally, that's really interesting to me because at least if Roe and Casey are good law, then the right at issue here is subject to heightened scrutiny, and that would seem to justify looking behind the justification uh, and seeing is you know is in fact the FDA being consistent in its treatment of of these drugs that implicate abortion in in a way that um, uh, it, you know, it, treating them di- the same or differently as other drugs that don't implicate the same sort of thing, uh, because at least under current doctrine. Other medical decisions do not appear to be subject to the same degree of heightened scrutiny as those uh, relating to pregnancy. And so that's a very current example. And, you know, again, a part of what we think of the reproductive rights question, I think we would want there to be some degree of consistency in terms of how we, we uh, approach the, the um, scrutiny question. Yeah, I can see Don wants to jump in, but when we pause for just a second, and Jonathan, I think there's a lot of premises there we can unpack. Uh, I do want to just focus just for, for a moment on sort of the crux of your paper, right? Having taken for granted, or take, take, not taken for granted, but taken as given the body of law on deference, taking as given this body of law on heightened scrutiny, what, what then is the, is the crux of your paper when these two doctrines come into, they, they collide with one another in a case, how ought the court manage these two doctrines at the same time? So what I argue is that, is that, if we take the premises and justifications of these two doctrines seriously, heightened scrutiny has to win. And it has to win for um, a variety of reasons. I'll just go through them them really quickly. Uh, one is, you know, heightened scrutiny is, is under current doctrine, is grounded in the Constitution. Deference to agencies is not. Uh, deference to agencies ultimately is grounded in constitutional or in a congressional choice. Uh, Congress deciding to um, give certain authority and and responsibility to agencies, and so um, a constitutional constraint uh, has to be superior to the this the the congressionally chosen constraint. Um, a second reason is a policy justification, which I think um, echoes a lot of the concerns that Don raises in his paper, which is that um, um, there are reasons we might expect agencies to um, be more competent in. Um, uh, some questions than others, but we also might worry about agency tunnel vision, right? That the agency is so focused on the the the, the thing that Congress has asked it, it to focus on that it might not uh, be as cognizant of some of these other values. Uh, another theme that I think uh, Don's paper draws out even more is that if you say to agencies, invoke science and you get a get out of jail free card, agencies are going to invoke science all the time. And there's a very real problem of agencies using scientific language to justify and in some respects insulate what are really policy judgments. And agencies would rather say, 
well, the science requires us to do this, than to say, well, we're not sure, but we're making a policy judgment that A is, is more important than B. Um, you know, then, then, then the agencies are making a contestable judgment. Whereas if you can invoke the mantle of science, then you can say, oh no, we're being objective. Um, and, and I think that's a reason that, that we want to be, uh, concerned here. And, and that relates to this idea that, um, you know, we may, we may be okay with the idea, or at least it's beyond the scope of my paper, that, um, that agencies should be allowed to make these sorts of policy judgments, should be allowed to be more or less precautionary about nuclear power or uh, tobacco labeling or what have you. Um, but the whole premise of heightened scrutiny is that the Constitution requires a different policy preference, right? That, 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 that weighing of the two has to have a finger on the scales. And, um, and we need to be, need to be, um, and then, you know, one, another reason which I hadn't originally thought much about, but, but Don actually was the one that flagged it for me. And I'm glad he did because it's helped make for a better paper is that there is this old doctrine that courts don't pay enough attention to, but is still there, uh, the constitutional fact doctrine, um, which, which says that when, um, there are facts that have, uh, uh, that are of constitutional moment because they are essential in, in resolving constitutional questions that, um, courts need to uh, uh, be more um, uh, more attentive, and and I think that you know simply reinforces um, this notion that um, if we have heightened scrutiny, if there are certain topics or subjects or or, or, or types of regulatory measures um, that implicate these constitutional constraints, then we have to set aside other sorts of deference doctrines uh, that would otherwise uh, give the agencies fairly fairly free reign. John, any, any further thoughts on Jonathan's paper before we turn uh, to yours? Yes, I wanted to uh, pick up on uh, something that uh, Jonathan said a uh, little while ago about one of the examples that he was, uh, he was discussing, because I think it, it illustrates uh, the core of this very narrow uh, disagreement between us about whether or not Baltimore Gas and Electric really is uh, super deference, as, as Jonathan and some of the law reviews say, or whether or not it really is no-look judicial review, which is what I say and what some of the other law review articles say. That's a pretty narrow disagreement. But um, I think that there are different ways to assess what a Supreme Court opinion means. And one way is to read it and interpret it as a text in terms of what you think it means. I think a better way to interpret uh, Supreme Court opinions is to look at how they've actually been applied by the lower courts, uh, to look at what an interpretive community thinks that they mean. And uh, rather than the relatively reasonable uh, interpretation that Jonathan wants to give to the, the case, when you look at the lower court uh, cases, they simply identify the question as being a scientific question and then say affirmed. And that's what we mean by no-look judicial review, that they're not looking at the underlying support in the record. They're not, they're not saying, is there any support in the record for this? Um, they're simply saying it's a question of science, and therefore, whatever the agency did, whether it had any evidence, whether it was rational or not, none of that matters. And a good example of that 
which I discuss at some length in the paper, is a case called Hayward versus Department of Labor, decided by the Fifth Circuit in 2008. And that's a case where uh, a computer program uh, actually denied someone uh, compensation for a uh, uh, whose whose husband had died from from cancer, and in, in challenging that decision, uh, the the challengers made a a quite plausible argument that the c- computer program did not take into account that this was a particularly rare kind of cancer and therefore was likely to have resulted from exposure to radiation. The court didn't even address that argument. They said, this is simply a scientific question. Therefore, we're going to defer to whatever the agency did without even considering whether or not there was a rational basis for that. I think, and I don't want to jump too much on the way he, the way he put it, but I think when Jonathan was describing the FDA policy uh, about um, not allowing uh, males who have sex with other males uh, to uh, uh, give, give blood or whatever it was, um, uh, he, he basically did the same thing that the courts do. And that is, he said, okay, here's the nature of the question. Uh, therefore, we should defer to it. He didn't look at the underlying question of, is there a reasonable support in the record? Um, is there a, a rational answer to the arguments that uh, have been have been made against the agency action? And I, I think this is why this uh, decision is is so important, not for the past, but for the future. Increasingly, we're, we're having agencies make decisions that are computer assisted, that are made by artificial intelligence, or in, in this Hayward case, based on a computer program that looked at various factors and then and then decided whether or not somebody got compensation. I think it would be a terrible thing if we insulated all of those decisions by government from uh, judicial review um, by by simply saying if it's a question of science, the courts aren't even going to look at the underlying basis. Whereas I think the way Jonathan describes it, which is much more reasonable, is that somehow courts are going to look at the underlying basis uh, but to just be somewhat more deferential to, uh, uh, to, to the agency. I just don't think that that, uh, and, you know, as a practical matter, having been a law clerk on the D.C. Circuit and having spent my, my life in, uh, in, in practicing administrative law, particularly in the environmental area, I just don't think that the, the, the reassuring language by Jonathan about, oh, well, it's just a little bit more deference, I just don't think that actually uh, exists. That's the core of my paper. When you think about the standard, uh, uh, the, the standard administrative law review, the court is supposed to look at whether or not uh, there is a, a a rational explanation by the agency for its decision. Um, well, what does it mean to be more deferential? Does it mean that? Um, you know, I guess maybe just if there's a close case that the court should up affirm, but I, I think that's the case under the standard test anyway. Um, all all a court, all an agency has to do is to have some science, not even a majority of science. They don't have to prove that they are right. I, I often say to my administrative law classes, the whole concept of deference is the right to be wrong. That is the right by an agency to make a decision that a court thinks is incorrect, but a court should uphold anyway. So I don't know how, I I don't know what it really means logically to say that there is more deference beyond the ordinary deference 
that already applies. And, and that's really the core of the, the paper. You say that, that the way that Baltimore gas case has been administered over the years is it runs the risk of, I think you call it, judging by aphorism. Um, and, and, and you complain that, that if Baltimore gas is full of aphorisms, they don't even, the subsequent courts don't even do justice to most of what's in Baltimore gas itself. You focus on uh, Baltimore gas itself is focused primarily on predictions. And, and as you say in the paper, and I sort of reiterated here, what the doctrine seems to have turned into instead is something akin to judges saying the word science and then waving up, throwing right. their hands up in the air and walking away. Um, well, then, so, Don, what would your preferred approach be then? What should happen in cases where uh, agencies are either actually are grappling with predictions of the, the future course of science and technology as it bears on a problem before them? Or just in general, in issues of, of, of technical expertise, scientific expertise, and, and judgment, what really is the proper role of the course? Is it just standard APA review, or is there more, more to it than that, either in a more deferential or less deferential direction? Um, I, I think I believe that standard uh, Administrative Procedure Act re- review of agency decisions is, is already quite uh, deferential. It simply looks to see whether or not there is a plausible rationale by the agency. The agency has, has looked at, uh, the, the problem and has stated a, a plausible justification for its actions. And it has some minimal level of support in the science. It's been very clear that agencies are not required to go with the majority view of science. Um, I sometimes again with an administrative law say, that, you know, if, if 10 or 20 percent of, of scientific opinion supports the agency's position, that's certainly enough. Um, and I, I, I just don't understand what uh, Baltimore Gas and Electric actually adds to standard Administrative Procedure Act review. And I think there are lots and lots of decisions on which agencies have uh, have expertise uh, and I, I think that simply using the concept of science as a talisman to say, oh, that can excuse courts from doing any probing whatsoever as to the agency's uh, decision. I just think that's wrong. And I think it's particularly wrong when uh, agencies make decisions on political grounds uh, and then rationalize them on scientific grounds. I should just know for listeners who aren't familiar with Don's background, not only has he sort of studied uh, these issues as an academic and, as he mentioned, practiced them in administrative law, but Don, I was, I was particularly interested in your paper because you worked in government. You worked at the EPA as, as general counsel, I believe, of, of the EPA, and so you've seen this up close. Um, how much of that experience has informed uh, your approach I'm not asking for specific anecdotes. I'm just saying that last point you made about judgments that are made on the basis of of, of policy preferences, plus perhaps a, a mix of, of, of technical judgment and so on. It's a mixture of those things, but it's often treated at the end of the process as just the product of expertise. Um, how has your, your perspective, having worked in the agency, sort of shaped your view of the doctrine? Well, I... I uh contrasted my experience with uh, EPA uh, at EPA, which is my primary expertise, but I also teach a a course periodically on food and drug law. 
And I, I did that in part for uh, comparison purposes. And I, I think that agencies like uh, FDA uh, tend to be somewhat more transparent about the science. The way they're set up is they often have external science panels that, that make recommendations to the agency as to what they should do. And then the political figures can overrule the uh, uh, the scientists if they if they choose to, but they have to be clear that they're doing that and why they're doing it. And it's really quite transparent that the scientists came out one way, but then the political figures changed it. Um, in my experience, uh, EPA is generally not transparent in that way. And uh, it was quite common uh, when I was there and also uh, in my practice subsequently that uh, what would really drive a decision was a political or policy decision, but it would be rationalized by the agency in terms of uh, in terms of science. And I think as, as Jonathan has uh, agreed, um, you know, if you have two different standards of review, one for policy judgments and another for science, uh, just as a matter of simple economics, you're you're creating an incentive for the agency to rationalize its decisions based on science whenever whenever it can. So I think having a level playing field in which we defer to agency expertise on policy judgments and scientific judgments equally makes a lot more sense than uh, than trying to uh, set out a, uh, a particular uh, a particularly lax standard of judicial review for scientific issues uh, and that tends to end up being really no judicial review at all it, as a practical matter cases like the Hayward case that I mentioned are really typical where people simply say oh well this is a scientific question therefore you know we judges don't know anything about it. Therefore, we're going to affirm whatever the agency did. And I think they have an obligation to engage at least in the minimal, thin kind of judicial review, uh, even on questions of, of science that, and making sure that there is at least some basis for what the agency has uh, has has done in the science. Before I give Jonathan a chance to jump back in and maybe offer his reactions to any of this, you know, Don, the part of your paper that jumps out uh, most clearly to me near the end is it's not just your, your point is not just that it should be sort of a level playing field in all cases but you say that in a certain in some cases if the science is particularly inconclusive um or it's the frontiers of science you call for for judges being for for judges devoting a little extra scrutiny to the case you say um when agencies make decisions on the frontiers of science judicial scrutiny should be heightened not reduced when science is inconclusive and still evolving rapidly, policy considerations play an even larger role uh, than when the scientific facts are clear and constrain administrative discretion to some degree. So in a way, you're saying the courts ought to be extra vigilant in those cases precisely so that you don't get policy judgments that are reframed as, as, as statements of factual cer uh, scientific certainty. I think that's right. Uh, although really, I, I, I think what I was trying to suggest there is that the internal rationale, um, uh, that, that is sometimes, uh, given for Baltimore gas and electric is, is in essence incoherent. That, uh, you know, it makes this distinction between ordinary scientific questions and questions that are on the frontiers of science. 
and it suggests that somehow decisions where the science is still evolving very rapidly should get even more uh, deference than ordinary decisions of science where science is relatively, you know, well, well developed. And I think that's backwards for the reasons that you uh, explained and I won't, uh, and I won't repeat that uh, precisely where the science is, is in its early stages and is evolving and changing. That's where we should really make it, uh, make, where, where courts should make clear that agencies have actually spelled out what, you know, what their thinking is so that the science later changes, we can go back and, and uh, re- reassess things. And I think, uh, Jonathan Adler's example, uh, of, uh, men having, uh, sex with, with other men is a, is a, is a particularly good example of that. Uh, uh, maybe at, at a certain point, as he suggested, there may have been uh, a, a rational basis for that at the time of the AIDS ap- epidemic, but um, uh, that may well have changed uh, o- over uh, o- over time. And I think one of the functions of judicial review is to try to document what the underlying rationale for an agency decision was so that if circumstances change, uh, we're, we're in a position to revisit the issue. Jonathan, uh, you and Don have signaled that you have a bit of disagreement about just the basic premise of this. So why don't I give you a chance to speak to that and offer any comments that, that you might have on, on Don's paper? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, there's a lot of agreement between Don's paper and mine. And, and you know, I'm just focused on a narrower, in some respects, a narrower question than, than Don is. And I'm kind of taking the existence of um, uh, super deference uh, as a given. And, you know, just to kind of remind us where we are, you know, where it comes from, the language in, in Baltimore Gas is simply that a reviewing court must be at its most deferential. And so whatever degree of deference agencies are capable of getting, this is at the, at the far end of the extreme. I agree with Don that, that, that in this context, like in a lot of contexts where we're talking about deference, court, there are courts, there are judges that use deference as an excuse to simply punt. And science is an attractive reason for that. Um, and so I agree with Don that there are instances in which what should just be an extreme form of deference in practice looks a lot like no-look deference. And I think that, um, and, and I think we can, you know, we can find cases where advocates uh, were able to get the courts to look a little bit at the science in cases where they weren't at all and, and the court should have. And I, I think, I think we can find that. One thing I think that highlights that, that, um, I think is worth putting on the table, uh, is separating the question from what the standard should be that judges are applying. And then what is it that we expect judges will do, right? So when thinking about what the, what a deference standard should or should not look like, there's kind of the ideal sense. What is the role that the courts should be playing? And then there is the just practical, okay, if you tell judges that this this is what they're supposed to apply, what are they going to do with it? And this has been a persistent problem across a wide range of deference doctrines. Um, One of Justice Kennedy's last opinions on the court uh, was a, a a um, concurrence in a case called Perea versus Sessions, where in the context of Chevron, he said, look, 
we actually have said this is a test and that, you know, you're supposed to first do step one and then do step two. And we look out at, at lower courts and we certainly see examples of lower courts just saying, oh, gosh, this statute is complicated. Agency, you win. And I think something, you know, I think some of Don's concern about no look review, I would argue, is the same thing. We have said an extreme form of deference, but still some degree of review. And I would agree with Don that there are instances in which courts have somewhat predictably just said, gosh, the science stuff is hard. Oh, wait, look, we are allowed to we are allowed to be at our most deferential so we can simply punt and we can just say science and walk away. And um, as a clerk on the D.C. Circuit myself, as someone who follows these cases, I, I am aware of that temptation and have seen it. And I think it's I think it's a real problem. And I, I think in in trying to solve the problem, we do have to um, be cognizant of that any any rule, any standard of review that we come up with or that we, we or that the Supreme Court comes up with um, may not be applied the way we would like. And the bet we have to think about that. We, you know, anytime we think we, 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 we have a, a standard of review that we expect lower court judges to apply, we have to think carefully about what are they actually going to do. And I do think that asking them to be, um, to provide a greater degree of, of scrutiny to scientific questions is, is something that we may or may not be confident that judges will do. Um, uh, something I've suggested in some other contexts, which I, which I suspect Don would agree with, is that one thing courts c- could do much better than they do is to police the line between what is actually a scientific judgment and what is actually a policy judgment. Uh, and that really going after what has been referred to as the science charade is something that courts are capable of doing and could do a lot more than they do and that that would relieve some of the problems that, you know, my paper touches on and that I think that Don's paper really focuses on. That is to say, um, uh, you know, because, if, and one reason for that is, is that if, if it's, if it's clear that agencies are making policy decisions, then that, that affects a lot of things, including the political feedback that the agencies get. You know, when the head of the agency is before the congressional committee and is saying, we chose this, it's a very different dynamic than when the head of that agency is saying, well, the science said we have to. And there's a lot more that judges and the courts, a lot greater role that courts could play in in helping clarify that distinction. And, you know, I think a lot of what, what Don complains of is no-look review is courts just completely punting on that question. If the science flag has been waved, we're going to walk away. We're not going to unpack what does the science really tell us, as a, or at least even plausibly tell us, as opposed to what is the agency just saying, gosh, this is, this is hard. We don't know. We'd rather err on the side of safety, which, as we all know, isn't necessarily erring on the side of safety, but erring on, a, on the side of a particular policy judgment. Um, I'll... Um, we're running out of time, but I'll let you have the final word on this. Any, any final thoughts on this? No, I, I agree very substantially with what uh, with what Jonathan Adler just just said, and I think it illustrates that the uh, disagreement between us, if there really is one, is uh, a pretty narrow one. Um, I, I do think that the uh, in in formulating uh, legal tests, uh, the courts need to be. Um, 
cognizant of how they are likely to be misapplied by by judges in the uh, in in the future. I haven't seen any examples uh, in the court cases of an explanation of how uh, Baltimore Gas and Electric deference is really any different than ordinary deference. And I can't think of a case where the result would have been different <coughs> if a court were applying Baltimore Gas and Electric deference as opposed to ordinary APA deference. So that that's kind of led me to believe that uh, this really was simply an offhanded remark by the court um, indicating that um, in, in, in questions like the one that there, that courts were supposed to be deferential to the agency's judgment. But I don't think you needed a different kind of deference to get to that, uh, to get to that outcome. Well, if we had another hour, I'd have a lot more questions about the big picture of, of what all this says about science and policy judgments in modern administration. And also some of the questions or the points that you raised, I think really raised broader questions about the evolution of deference doctrines since the, the early 80s, the, both in theory and in practice, but I guess we'll have to save that for another podcast. In the meantime, I really encourage everybody to look back at the papers from this roundtable, um, not just the two that we discussed today, but again, a paper on Chevron in the context of immigration adjudication by Chris Walker and Shoba Siva Prasad Wadia. Uh, that's Grace Center Working Paper 20-15. Another paper by the political scientist uh, Tony Mills, Anthony Mills. It was titled The Role of Judgment and Deliberation in Science-Based Policy. That's Working Paper 21-16. As it happens, Tony is a con- colleague of mine over at the American Enterprise Institute, and he and I uh, recorded a podcast over at AEI on that paper, and we'll include it in our email sending out this podcast and the other papers. But again, my guests today have been first Don Elliott, author of Retiring No-Look Judicial Review in Agency Cases Involving Science. Don, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, And uh, then last, uh, Jonathan Adler, author of Super Deference and Heightened Scrutiny, or When Super Deference is Not So Super. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. And thanks, as always, to our audience for tuning in. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us a rating and a review. Subscribe, uh, tell your friends, and please join us for the next episode of Gray Matters.